There's a distillery near where Kelly Phillips Herb lives, outside of Philadelphia, that will deliver liquor to your door. So we actually ordered liquor online and, you know, paid. And they got a message that said they were going to deliver it. And if we'd like to pay a tip, we could do so through Venmo. Kelly is a tax lawyer and a writer for Forbes. And she just wrote a big story about tipping and all the new ways we tip. Venmo is obviously one of them. Point-of-sale screens are another. You know, the screens where you can push a button to give 15, 20, or 25% to your barista. They're popping up in a lot of places. Someone did tell me the other day that they were asked to tip in a grocery store at a self-serve kiosk. But also, those screens and pre-formulated tips make it easier for the suggested amount to slide upwards. The day before I spoke with Kelly, her husband had gone to get a haircut for himself and their son. And when he went to tip at the bottom where the percentages pop up, his regular tip was the minimum offering that they gave him. And he said it made him feel actually kind of angry about the whole tipping process, which is exactly um, what the professor in my story noticed. As tip creep goes up, people feel a little more resentful. And um, someone referred to it the other day as emotional blackmail, right? Like this idea that if you don't tip your, if you don't tip and if you don't tip well in almost all kinds of sectors now that you're somehow a bad person. So there's, I think there's a lot of uh, psychological you know, reckoning to come about how we feel about tipping and who we tip and how we tip and how much we tip. Suddenly, tipping is leading newscasts. This morning, a growing number of shoppers are reaching their tipping point. Why am I tipping for a mobile pickup order? And most of this is thanks to technology. So today on the show, at the risk of sounding like Seinfeld, what's the deal with tipping now? I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Hey, listeners, it's Lizzie, and I want to tell you about an event we are doing with our friends at The Waves. Do you love Succession? Do you love it as much as I do? If you want to deep dive into the show's feminist heroes and villains and hear a bunch of smart women talk about the fashion, power, and relationship dynamics of one of HBO's biggest and best shows, you can join us for a very special Women of Succession virtual event. It's hosted by me and exclusively for Slate Plus members. It's on Tuesday, May 3rd at 5 p.m. Eastern, and you can sign up now at slate.com slash waves event. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get into how digital tipping has changed the game, I asked Kelly for a little traditional tipping 101. 
what you might make, say, as a server and how tips figure into that? So it varies from state to state, actually, how much you could make without tipping because there are, as most people know, minimum wage laws. There are also minimum wage laws federally and statewide, right? So you could have a different expectation in New York or California than you would in Georgia. The minimum wage nationally is $7.25. There are states that have a higher minimum wage. But for tipped employees, the way it works is you get paid a lower rate, typically in restaurants. Um, In my story, for example, I was uh, chatting with some folks in North Carolina. They get um, just a little over $2 an hour um, on their non-tipped wages. And then the idea is that the tips that you receive are supposed to add up to at least that minimum wage. So when you add up all of your tips of the day and you divide it by the number of hours that you work, it needs to come out so that you've made at least that $7.25 or, you know, depending again on the state where you are. Um, if you don't get that, then your employer is supposed to kind of top you up to make sure that you do receive at least the minimum wage in the state where you are. And what do you think that system of tipping has done for wages for service workers? I mean, Do we have any data that talks about how often tips actually make up the difference or do they make up the difference um, in, in terms of minimum wage? Well, there's been a lot of, you know, kind of investigation, obviously, by the IRS into what they would consider to be expectations of what should be tipped versus what's reported. You know, service industry is really interesting for a lot of reasons. One is because it's a huge range of services and it's a huge range of, you know, you're looking at geography and you're looking at pay and there's a marked difference between what you might expect to get paid even on a percentage basis, not even on a dollar basis, you know, in a Waffle House in rural North Carolina, which is where I grew up, versus a high-end restaurant in Philadelphia where I now live. Because again, not just from a dollar perspective, but I think there's a difference in perception, you know, how much time did that person spend? Um, Again, Waffle House, it might be that you sit down, they bring you a cup of coffee, your interactions are five or 10 minutes. Um, At a high-end restaurant, they might be you know, recommending dishes for you, uh, you know, modifying whatever you've ordered, finding out more information about sourcing. Like there's a lot of difference in terms of both, not just dollars, but, you know, time spent where you live, how much things cost. So I think that when you, when you say like, how much information do we have in terms of, you know, who is being paid what and are they being paid appropriately? I think that's really difficult to tell because I do think it changes from place to place and kind of industry, restaurant or, you know, restaurant bar, um, fast food. You know, how does that change your perception of the kind of service that you're getting and also how you feel about maybe you feel about your server? The pandemic upended all of this in multiple ways. First, Americans were asked to be and were more generous with their tips, knowing that service workers were hurting. Of course, this generosity wasn't distributed equally. Research shows that workers are also tipped differently by race, gender, and other factors, like how they look. Second, point-of-sale tipping flourished all over the place. Toast, which is a digital point-of-sale platform that serves restaurants, reports that in the last quarter of 2022, 
a tip was included on nearly half of credit card or digital payment transactions at fast food restaurants. That's up from 37% of payments at the start of 2020. And then once the pandemic started to um, ease and things started to reopen, I think there might have been an expectation that there would be less demand on the tipping side, especially for things like takeout, um, which I realize is the same amount of service on some level. So I'm not suggesting that it's appropriate, but I do know that people were commenting, I can't believe they're still asking me for tips, right? Hmm. When I was working on the piece, I, I spoke to folks in restaurants, and the wait staff was typically quite mixed on whether or not they had seen the same level or less in tipping after the pandemic. I think it really, again, depends on geography and the kind of establishment that they're at. Is there any solid, say, survey data about how common point-of-sale, you know, screen tipping is? Because, you know, anecdotally, they can sort of feel like they're everywhere, but I, I have no sense of what the numbers look like. Well, I think they're starting to look at that a lot more in detail. Um, I spoke with a number of academics when I was writing my piece, including a professor who is at Stanford, um, Professor Don Kaur, who wrote an article based on his experiences as a cab driver. He actually drove a yellow cab um, before he became a professor. Hmm. And so he got the tip data from those yellow cabs. He actually had, it's a lot of data. And he analyzed, if you do the math for somebody, are they more likely to tip? If you give them options, like where is kind of the breaking point on tipping? And it was really, you know, that's really interesting that he, even that data, which was quite a bit of data, it stretches back, obviously, pre-pandemic. So I think that the pandemic is going to definitely impact a lot of the tipping data. And I think our, our attitudes overall have changed just within the last year. Donker found that when riders swiped their credit cards and were presented with a tip screen, 97% of them tipped. And when taxicab providers raised the default tip suggestions, tips went up from 17.45% to 18.84%. Also, Donker found that when cab companies pushed the pre-selected numbers too high, consumers rebelled. When those screens start changing, when it goes from like 15, 20, 25 to 20, 25, 30, people start opting out of tipping, hmm. not just changing or picking a different number. They start opting out. Um, and then the other thing that he found that was really interesting is that while I mentioned earlier that we like the idea that someone's doing the math for us, the higher the fare, the less likely they are to choose the auto tip. And it was more likely that people would would write in their own amount rather than check, uh, you know, check from the pre-selected um, numbers. And that is likely because we, I think we all kind of have this idea of what we consider the value of a service. And again, I think that having those, uh, you know, having the math done for you and, and understanding, I think that there's some cultural norms, right? Like when you look at those three numbers, you're like, oh, everybody's probably going to pick from this window, right? So I, I feel very confident that I'm doing what everybody else would do because you don't want to 
But you don't want to be the outlier. Yeah. Exactly. Like you don't want to be the cheap, the cheap tipper, right? Um, but I do think that you you start to realize as the numbers go up that, you know, we're all kind of programmed, I think, to pick the middle option. They've done a lot of psychological stories about how when people do pricing, they assume that there's always going to be something that most people will gravitate towards. And then there's going to be the people who like to buy the premium package and people who want to buy the cheaper package, right? Like that's pricing generally. And I think that we're kind of programmed that way for tips too, right? Like we tend to pick the middle option. But when the middle option is no longer our norm, I think there's definitely a reaction. And that's sort of what I was alluding to when I talked about my husband and and his tip situation is that, you know, he's used to tipping a certain number. Um, and then all of a sudden, that isn't like what we would consider the norm. That's not the middle screen anymore. It's actually somebody else looks at it as now it's the lower number. And I think there's also some concern about, especially with those kinds of things, how much of this is going to the driver or the person providing the service. So I have noticed, for example, uh, Target, if you tip with Target, they will send you, when they send you a receipt, they will say 100% of your tip went straight to the driver. Um, I think people want to know, especially when they're transacting something online, they want to know that somebody, you know, that the thing they think they're doing, because I think tipping, we think of as a good thing, right? Like we think we're saying thank you. So I think that we want to make sure we're saying thank you to the right person and not maybe to a a company. One way to ensure that your tip is going directly to whoever provided you a service is to pay them through Venmo, Zelle, or another digital payment platform. And the government has started to realize this, too. It's very clear that the IRS, for example, is aware that there's a disparity because one of the things that they have suggested in their proposal that they they put out recently um, was that to participate in this pilot program, you would actually have to use the same point of service technology for the sale as you would for the tip. So you could not use separate systems. So, you know, I think we're very aware that it exists. I haven't seen the data. Um, You know, I, I did, I mentioned I had the experience where someone asked me for a tip via Venmo after the fact. Um, I don't see that as being very common, but we do know that it's happening. Is there any way of knowing if people like capture more income that way than they might have otherwise? Like, you know, let's say you actually didn't happen to carry cash, but you can say, oh, well, here, you know, let me let me Venmo you five dollars. Well, statistically, um, there is a, a a discount for cash when we think about tipping. Most of the time, even the IRS recognizes that when people tip in cash, they're more likely to tip less. Um, they actually, huh. when they yeah, when they do their uh, their tip estimates, there's a discount for cash because just traditionally that's been what's happening. I would expect that when you have separate platforms, so such as Venmo, something like that, um, I would expect that those numbers would be higher than they would be for cash. But I would also not be surprised to learn that people opt out of tipping when they have to do a second step. Um, because again, when I, as I mentioned, if the tip had been on my order for the, the liquor that we got, <laughs> it would have been a very easy and quick 
tip for me. The fact that I had to then switch to my phone to pull up Venmo, which I hadn't used in a while, you know, that that made it more difficult. Uh, Consumers don't typically like an extra step. And that's exactly the reason, again, going back to the easy math, that's exactly the reason why people make it easy for you to tip now. And uh, they they, they have the boxes and and they want you to do it all at once. When we come back, how the IRS wants to get its cut. Well, let's talk about the IRS. Let's let's use your tax lawyer brain. In the past, most numbers have suggested that income from tipped workers is underreported to the IRS. Do, do we know how much? Yes. Um, the IRS suggests, well, it's so the lawyer in me, actually, I said yes really quickly. The lawyer in me would like to point out that um, a lot of what the IRS has is estimates based on, you know, audits and and patterns of what they've seen. So do we know, you know, is it, are people raising their hands and saying, yes, I did, in fact, under-report by this much? Um, you know, that's not what's happening. We but know-ish. <laughs> yes, exactly. They've done studies, um, and, you know, the, the tax gap study in particular, which is the difference between what the IRS gets and what they expect, they know that when there's an uh, information reporting form like a W-2, where everything is reported from a, a third party like an employer, of that income ends up on a return. And that's Hmm. their experience. But when you look at something like tips, it's 55%. It's a big, big difference. Yeah. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I think people's brains automatically go to, oh, this is because people are cheating. Um, I suspect, you know, yes, there are people who underreport. But I also think that there's a level of complexity and figuring out what it is that you received, when you received it, how much of it was tips, how much of it was wages. Um, You're supposed to be reporting to your employer and then your employer turns around and reports that on a W-2 to you. We know historically that hasn't happened. I've represented clients in the service industry, both on the employer side from the restaurant and um, servers. And, you know, there's there's often a disconnect between how much did I actually get? You know, it's two o'clock in the morning. They've split tips, right? You've pulled your tips together. You've split them. You put it in your pocket. You know generally how much it is, but do you know if it was $100 or $101.73, right? And if you do that time after time after time, even if you have the best of intentions, you could inadvertently be underreporting. The IRS has a proposal to counter this. It's called the Service Industry Tip Compliance Agreement, or SITCA. It would replace three different programs that currently try to account for tip income. So the idea of this program would be that it would be a new program that would replace lots of other pieces and it would be more consolidated. It is a voluntary program, so it is not something that all restaurants would have to sign up for, all folks in the service industry. Um, You actually have to apply to be accepted into the program. Um, And so you're probably thinking, you know, why would we want to do this, right? Yeah, why why would someone do that? So the idea is that if you kind of check check all the boxes for the IRS, if you do all of the things that they want you to do, they will give you some level of audit protection for the employer. So Hmm. they say to the employer, like, because right now, you know, IRS could audit you in theory, right? As a business person, they could go into your business and say, we'd like to see your books. But the idea is that, that if you are timely and regularly voluntarily reporting to IRS, 
um, and saying this is exactly what we're getting and you're otherwise in compliance and you're doing all the right things, the IRS is going to give you a break. They're going to say, you know what, we believe you. Um, we believe that most of what you're telling us, it sounds, you know, it's within the norms that we expect. Um, so they give you this level of audit protection. And in fact, if you look, a lot of attorneys and accountants who are in this space, in the, in the service industry space, are generally supportive of this idea um, because of this protection, this audit protection that it affords employers. And the way it would work is right now the IRS has a bunch of different systems for how it kind of figures what it thinks you should be reporting. And I've alluded to some of that earlier, but, you know, obviously there's a digital trail right now. The idea behind this new program is that it would be linked to the use of technology, more technology. So as I uh, mentioned earlier, you would have your point of sale technology would have to be accepted for both sales and tips. So you would not have like a separate Venmo or a separate screen where someone else would tip in a different way. It would have to be on the same platform. And the idea is that the IRS would rely on that data to have a better idea of what kind of money you were taking in and how much people were tipping. Hmm. They're trying to build models. They're looking at, you know, they're going to tell you that the reason that they're doing this is because they're trying to build compliance. But the other thing that they're doing necessarily is more data gives them a better idea of whether or not you're actually in compliance, right? So if they see, and then they actually um, mentioned that in the proposal, they mentioned that it would also, one of the things about the program, which is interesting, is it gives the employers the ability to make an adjustment midway through the year if they see that tipping patterns have changed. And I think that's really interesting because as we've mentioned, like people's kind of notions about tipping really are changing and they're changing much more quickly over the last two or three years than they have maybe over the last 10 years. Do we know what this means for workers who rely on tips? So there's been a lot of, I would argue, poorly worded and angry commentary suggesting that the IRS is going after servers. Um, So I would say a couple things about that. I think, first of all, this is not a new tax. Um, Employees have long been responsible for reporting the income that they get. And this isn't just for servers, right? This is for independent contractors, freelancers, There are a lot of folks that get paid not on a W-2 that have to make sure that they report the extra right to the IRS. So this is not new. What it's supposed to do for employees, though, um, kind of two pieces. One is, as I mentioned before, employees, you know, they're responsible for reporting their tips. They're supposed to report them to the employer, and the employer is supposed to be including that on a W-2. That doesn't always happen. And when that doesn't always happen the burden falls to the employee to report the difference on their 1040. With better technology and um, better reporting, the employer will know how much they're supposed to be reporting to the IRS. So on some level, it shifts the burden a little bit to the employer to make sure that they are reporting what's correct. Traditionally, service workers were encouraged to keep tip diaries, logging all that income so they could report it to the IRS. But, well... I can tell you that in all of the the folks that I've represented, um, I only had one really good tip diary that I've ever seen. Honestly, most people aren't that organized. 
So this is a way of exploiting technology that already exists to maybe make it easier for servers to report. Now, does that mean that previously unreported income will now be subject to reporting? Absolutely. Um, and for some people, they don't love that, right? So if you're the college student who is just, you know, serving on the weekends for a little extra money, maybe you don't love that uh, the money that you might not have had to report before is reportable. But there are a lot of folks in the service industry for whom this is their career and this is their livelihood. So, you know, in theory, having the employer report the income on the W-2 does a couple of things. One, it establishes a more accurate picture of how much you made. Two, it means that you're having withholding at the source so that you actually don't have to figure out estimated payments or how much money you're going to need to pay on tax day because most of that is already figured for you. Um, and you get the employer contribution, which is great because as uh, anybody who's ever freelanced knows, which is um, anytime you have to do self-reporting of income, you can get stuck with uh, FICA taxes, having to pay yeah. both pieces. So that's a really good thing is a good result, I think, for employees. Um, and, and I think, you know, the, the downside is that they do not get the audit protection. Um, but again, with better reporting, maybe that is not as much of an issue. Maybe the IRS isn't flagging them because they trust the employer. The IRS is not doing this out of the goodness of its heart. And Kelly gets that to some people, it looks like the government is going after workers who are already struggling to make a livable wage. But she says there are positives. I don't want to suggest that this is something that the IRS is doing to be gracious. <laughs> but I do think that it's important to realize that there are, um, you know, there, there are really good things that can come of having properly reported income. And again, that goes back to lowering the emotional burden of you having to figure out your own taxes, making sure that you're employed, uh, your, your taxes are getting reported to Social Security so that you can have all of your um, retirement benefits properly accounted for. I mean, there are some, uh, I think, really positive things coming out of this. And I will say that if you um, kind of look around at some of the uh, commentary that's coming out of the restaurant industry, I've seen Overall, not a lot of negative reaction. I think most of the negative reaction I've seen has uh, been from politicians. Huh. I wonder, just thinking about this conversation, how much of it would sound insane to someone outside of the U.S. that we spend so much time thinking about tipping, that so many people rely on tips, that there's this whole kind of section of our economy devoted to something that is not exclusively, but primarily an American phenomenon. I believe that's absolutely true. So my husband is a, an attorney, not a tax attorney. Taxes uh, completely confound him. But he is a, he's a corporate attorney, and a rather significant portion of his work is done in Western Europe, um, Germany particularly. Um, they're actually astounded by the notion that we don't pay our servers a living wage to yeah. begin with, right? Like it's weird to them that they don't all get benefits that because again, as I mentioned, you know, sometimes service industry is the college kid working on the weekend, but for a lot of folks, it's a full-time job and we don't treat it. I don't think like a full-time job. Will we ever get rid of tipping? 
No, I don't think we will. And the reason I say that is because um, there have been some um, efforts to do this, both on, on a state legislated perspective to just raise the minimum wage for tipping to not be that $2, and I think it's 19 cents, but to actually be a, a regular minimum wage. And there have been restaurants that have done this as experiments, right, where they have no tipping policies because they're going to pay their folks more. Um, and even though those things sound good, when I was speaking to folks when writing this piece, not one server supported the idea of no tipping. I think we've just become so reliant on it that it's a scary prospect to have it taken away. So um, I don't see it happening anytime soon. And I think also, I mean, to be fair, and, and the, the Canadian professors that I spoke to in particular felt very strongly about this, um, that, you know, it is a way for customers to subsidize wages for yeah. employees, right? And employers aren't going to be the one to say, no, please let us pay instead, right? <laughs> so I don't I don't think that culturally we're ready to make that shift. And most efforts to kind of dip toe in it and see if it'll work haven't really been successful. Kelly Phillips, sir, thank you so much for your reporting and for and for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you. Kelly Phillips Herb is a tax lawyer with Whiting Williams in Philadelphia. She also writes about taxes for Forbes. And that is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell and Patrick Fort. Our show is edited by Mia Armstrong Lopez. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. And we're also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you are a fan of the show, I have a request for you. Join Slate Plus. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. You'll get all your Slate podcasts ad-free. All right, we'll be back next week with more episodes. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.